Welcome back, Bible readers. This is the Rooted Podcast, and this is week number 24. This week, we will finish up the book of Job, and I know some of you are cheering out there. It wasn't that bad, but sometimes those speeches of Job and his friends can get a little laborious. And so this week, we'll finish up Job, and we'll start to go into the Psalms, probably one of the most well-loved sections of Scripture. So let's finish up Job first. Let's start with Job chapter 32. So in Job chapter 32, a new character enters the picture. His name is Elihu, and Job's three friends give up, concluding that Job was hopelessly self-righteous and beyond instruction. Well, Elihu's temperament, we find out, was his anger. He was angry with Job because Job considered himself right and God wrong. Now, in chapter 33, Elihu presents his views, giving respect to the older friends who had spoke before him. He says this is why he refrained from speaking until now. And his whole speech is an attempt to explain to Job why God was not responding to him. You see, Job's three friends told him that Job's suffering was punitive. Job's wife said his suffering was because God was unfair. But now, Elihu says that Job's suffering was designed to teach Job something. In other words, there's a lesson that he needs to learn from all his suffering. This leads us right into chapter 34, where Elihu speaks for a second time. This time, he sides with Job's three friends in saying that he believed that God was acting perfectly just in allowing Job to suffer. And then Elihu proceeds to review God's character to kind of maybe illustrate his justice. God was not answerable to anyone, and he would not likely answer Job, Elihu says. So Job's best course of action was to repent of his wrongdoing. Of course, Elihu is assuming what Job's three friends had assumed, that Job's suffering was based on some sort of sin. But the reader knows that Job's suffering is not related to his sin, as chapters 1 and 2 of Job demonstrated to us earlier on. So now for a third time, Elihu speaks up in chapter 35. Job felt God should have rewarded him for his innocence rather than subjecting him to suffering. Elihu replied that man's sin or innocence does not affect God, and God was silent to Job because Job was proud. Elihu therefore suggests that what Job needed to do was stop complaining and turn to God. He alone has the answer to his plight. Then chapters 36 and 37 contain Elihu's fourth speech, and this is his most impressive one yet. He touched on subjects seen in his first three speeches, you know, things like suffering, God's sovereignty, God's justice, but now he added to this God's power and his benevolence. Elihu affirmed that God was mighty and merciful. God is sovereign and a supremely wise teacher. God's wisdom is infinite. No one can understand him. Job needed to humble himself before God, and we can count on God to be just and right. It might not look that way to us, but God's wisdom is far above and beyond what we can possibly see or comprehend. Elihu's four speeches seem to focus on the positive aspects of God's character, whereas Job's three friends focused on the negative aspects. Elihu saw God as more of a teacher. The other friends viewed him more as a judge. So now in chapter 38 brings a new character into the mix, and he is the only character that really matters, and he is God. Chapter 38 through most of chapter 42 is a cycle of speeches between God and Job. What God did not say to Job is as surprising as what he actually did say. He did not mention Job's suffering. He gave no explanation of the problem of evil. He did not even defend himself against Job's charge of injustice. God simply revealed himself to Job and his companions to a greater degree than they had done before. And that greater degree dissolved all their difficulties. Do you see the tremendous truth? about what this book is trying to teach us. It's trying to teach us that knowing God better each and every day through His Word is what is most important. 
There are some questions that we will never get the answer to in the fashion that we want. What we can, however, get is closer to the one who knows the answer to those questions. And even though he might never grace us with the answer to those questions, what we must come to grips with is that we trust his wisdom. God's roles in his speeches was not to defend charges leveled against him by Job. His role was that of a prosecutor who was asking questions of Job. Job was the defendant. God asked Job more than 70 unanswerable questions and proved him to be both ignorant and impotent. Since Job couldn't understand or determine God's ways with nature, he obviously could not comprehend or control God's dealings with people. And so what God does is he directly challenges and accuses Job of clouding the truth about himself. Job should have defended God's justice since he was supposed to be God's friend. If this statement tells us anything, it should remind us that every believer should be slow to affirm that he knows God's will about the affairs of another person's life. We still don't know all the facts concerning what, why God allows certain things to take place. God began to break down Job blow by verbal blow. But understand that these questions were not designed to humiliate Job. God's purpose is to bring Job to a better understanding of how much he still has to learn, how much he does not know, and how endless the wisdom of God really is. God shows his benevolence. In these speeches, he teaches him rather than humiliating him. God gives him lessons on cosmology, oceanography, meteorology, astronomy, and zoology. And it's clear that God's relationship with Job was not based on a legal relationship as Job thought it was, and as Job's three friends had thought it was, and how even today we fall into that same trap. God's dealings with Job was based on grace and grace alone. And God's dealings with us today are based on grace as well. And I think we can all say amen to that. Now, in chapter 41, excuse me, in chapter 40 and 41, God awaits Job's response. But Job wisely says, I have nothing to say. <laughs> so God speaks for a second time to Job. This time the focus is on two very powerful animals of the sea and the land, the behemoth and the, the and if I can say it right, <laughs> the Leviathan. The description of these two powerful animals is once again to demonstrate to Job how God's wisdom is far above and beyond anything Job can possibly understand. I like the phrase that one author said, anyone who cannot undertake God's works, like God's works in creation, has no right to undermine God's ways. So what he's saying is that if you don't have the ability to create the worlds and all that's in them, then you don't have the right to question anything that God does with that same creation. Well, it seems that Job finally realizes that he was foolish to question the ways of God. You see, Job's problem with God was not one of theology. It was one of fellowship. He didn't get the answer to the problem of evil or to the problem of suffering, but he found himself closer to God as a result. Job found God in the midst of his sufferings. He did not find relief from his sufferings. You know, when you go to a funeral service and visit the family of a deceased person, there's only so much you can say, and many times you don't have the answers as to their questions of why. They've got lots of questions of why, but it's your presence that is more important to them sometimes than anything else. In the same way, sometimes we don't need the answers to life's mysterious questions. We just need the presence of the Lord, and we need to move closer to Him. All right, well, that closes up the book of Job, and you're probably shouting amen from the rooftops, I know. But now it's time to move on to the next book of the Bible, the Psalms, probably the most well-loved book and probably the most well-read book 
in the Old Testament. And here are a few things to keep in mind when reading through the Psalms. And by the way, we'll be in the Psalms for probably the next 30 days. First, the Psalms are actually divided into five books. Many Bibles will note this at the beginning of each section. Unfortunately, there's not really any particular rhyme or reason for the Psalms to be collected into five books. That's just kind of how they are. Second, the Psalms cover a thousand-year period of time. The earlier Psalms were written about 1500 B.C. during the days of Moses, and the later ones after the exile around 500 B.C. However, most of the Psalms were written during the hundred-year period of the histories of Saul, David, and Solomon. Third, as far as authorship goes, most scholars will ascribe Ezra to be the one who collected all the Psalms and organized them into books. He was the editor of sorts. Fourth, there are different kinds or types of psalms. For example, there are messianic psalms, there are thanksgiving psalms, imprecatory ones, lament ones, pilgrim ones, wisdom ones, historical ones, nature ones, and the list goes on. Fifth, the psalms are classified as poetry. This is very important. So interpretation of the psalms might be tricky at times, and sometimes, well, I say much of the time, Psalms are taken out of context, and we'll address that as we talk about each one. Sixth, the reason the Psalms are most liked is because they seem to cover every possible conceivable emotion or struggle or question or problem or experience that is common to every person that's common to all humanity. But the single element that is common in all the Psalms is that of praise. And then two other notes. First, Understand that there are no chapters when speaking of the Psalms. Each Psalm can stand on its own as one. So you don't say Psalm chapter 1 or Psalm chapters 3 to 10. You just say Psalm 3 through 10. Second, as we go through the Psalms, I'm going to try to make at least a few comments on each Psalm, but I might not be able to talk at length about each one because, well, there are a lot of them. All right, so let's start. Psalm 1. Psalm 1 is considered a wisdom psalm, and many believe it's a good introduction to the psalms in general because of its practical nature. This psalm introduces us to the way in which we might find happiness and fulfillment in life. We find those things by meditation on and delight in the scriptures. This psalm also introduces us to the doctrine of two ways, which is a very common concept. Uh, Think about it this way. There are New Testament examples of this two-way thinking. Most notable is in Jesus' teaching on the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew 7, there are two gates, two roads, uh, two trees, uh, two types of fruits, two houses, two foundations, and of course, two ways, the broad way and the narrow way. And so I think this psalm deliberately draws two portraits in our mind, the portrait of the wicked man and the portrait of the wise man. The question then that is naturally posed is, which are you? Because throughout these psalms, we'll be confronted with the tension of living in a world that is not only alienated from God, but antagonistic towards Him and His people. We must therefore find our direction and confidence in the Scriptures. Psalm 2 is considered to be a Messianic psalm. A Messianic psalm is simply one that speaks of the person and work of the Messiah. And so Psalm 2 speaks of the rebellion of the world's rulers against God's anointed. And God's anointed actually means Messiah. And of His Father's decree to give him dominion over them. This determination plus the psalm's ready and obvious application to the hostile circumstances of their day made Psalm 2 one of the psalms most quoted by the writers in the New Testament. And what's interesting here is that there is some evidence in both Jewish and Christian traditions that Psalm 2 was at one time joined to Psalm 1. 
This would throw light on the doctrine of two ways, like we mentioned about Psalm 1. On the one way, or excuse me, on the one hand, the way of the sinner in Psalm 1 now becomes a cosmic revolt of the nations against God. And in Psalm 2, God sends his anointed one to crush that cosmic rebellion or revolt and rule all the nations. Now, whether or not we connect the two Psalms or not, God's control over the nations is shown in Psalm 2 as he laughs over the wicked's attempt to rule that which he has created. Psalm 3 is a lament psalm that was composed by David. The historical circumstances around this psalm are in 2 Samuel 15-17, and this is Absalom's rebellion against David, his father. David was forced into exile, and you can begin to understand David's anguish because this was his own son that was rebelling. And Psalm 3 illustrates the fact that theology and life are connected. And by this, I mean that while David's life was full of conflict, he did not have any problems lying his head down to sleep at night or waking up to start a new day. This absence of fear stems not from a reckless view of the world around him, but from the knowledge and experience that the Lord is his shield and the one who lifts up his head. Psalm 4 is also a lament psalm. Now, if you read the inscription at the beginning of the psalm, you see how the Israelites were to use the psalms in public worship. Not all the psalms have these inscriptions, but I just pointed out that this one does. Now, while David is in danger of physical harm in Psalm 3, in Psalm 4, the evidence suggests a different crisis, one which false accusations were made. We as believers must endure the false accusations about us and our faith on a constant basis, but we have assurance from God of his protective care and his provision, just as Jesus says in Matthew 5, 11 to 12, blessed are you when people insult you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Psalm 5 is a prayer of David that arose out of opposition by his enemies. This was a prayer for protection and maybe a prayer that we can pray at times as well. There are a few good characteristics about David's prayer in this psalm that are good for us to follow. I listed three specific ones. David's prayer was urgent, his prayer was persistent, and his prayer was with an expectant spirit. And there's an important connection here in this psalm between authentic worship and following God's path. God is not going to reveal the path you are to follow if you are not worshiping him and seeking him with all your heart. Psalm 6 is another lament psalm. Whatever occasion David's composition of the psalm is not noted, but he had experienced God disfavor, God's disfavor for some sin. In the course of this psalm, the writer moves closer to God and thus relatively further from his enemies. God and the psalmist's adversaries are rather fixed entities in this drama. And it's the psalmist, it's David, who, whose position changes. When he is far from God, he is in jeopardy. But as he moves toward God, his enemies become disadvantaged. Now, much of Psalm 7 deals with the issue of God's justice. David asked that God's justice be applied to him and to his enemies. Being made in the image of God, we long for justice as well. And sadly, many of us have lost faith in the judicial, excuse me, in the judicial system's ability to mete out effective and fair justice. And the application for believers is to be sure to walk in integrity, leaving no reason for the ungodly to accuse them in an effort to destroy them. And as they live righteously and from time to time face malicious attacks, they can pray with confidence for the righteous judge of all the earth will vindicate them and will eventually destroy the, the, the threat. He will do this maybe not immediately, 
but in time to come, for he is the righteous judge who will ultimately vindicate the righteous. Now, Psalm 8 could be described as a magnificent hymn, a favorite of the New Testament writers, especially the author of Hebrews, who use it to support the incomparability of Jesus. You can't compare Jesus to anything. It also serves as a commentary on Genesis chapter 1 and 2, explaining the importance and role of humanity in God's creation of all things. True to its hymn nature, the psalm is filled with praise to God, His name and His attributes, His awesome power and glory, especially revealed in creation of the human race, His grand design in creation. Psalm 9 is a positive song of thanksgiving. It's good for us to remember God's past acts of deliverance and praise Him for when we face opposition. Because on the basis of God's faithfulness in the past, we can have confidence in His present protection and our future distresses that will eventually come our way. Psalm 10 is a prayer for immediate help in affliction. It contains a powerful description of the wicked ones who would oppose God and attack His people. And sometimes it seems that God's failure to execute judgment immediately frustrates the righteous. We can live with this frustration because we know God is powerful enough to avenge the mistreated. It's waiting on Him and His timing that proves to be difficult. Psalm 11 teaches us that trust in God will not shield us from the dangers that lurk around us, but it will equip us with the means for dealing with them. Like David the shepherd, we must build a lifestyle of fully trusting God in the daily circumstances of life, filling our lives with more and more trust and leaving less and less place for fear. You see, in the New Testament, Jesus warns his disciples that he is sending them as sheep among the wolves, Matthew 10 and in Acts 20, he tells them that they should stand firm in the faith and not fear those who only have power over the body, but fear the Lord who has power over the body and the soul. Psalm 12 is a current psalm, I think, more than anything for our current context. You know, in a world that lives by deception and tyranny, God's words are the only true words. It would be easy to relate this message of this psalm to the world today. Deception, false flattery, fraud, propaganda, double talk, all these things dominate. Dishonesty functions on all levels, but it becomes malicious when people in positions of power or authority use it to destroy the weak. So who can the people trust? Well, we know that the Word of God is what we can trust. God's Word is pure. It is truth. What it reports is completely accurate. What it teaches is proper and right. What it promises is sure. People may not always like what the Bible says, but it tells the truth. Therefore, they can build their lives on it. Psalm 13, like several of the preceding psalms, this one is also a prayer that the psalmist offered in the midst of affliction. David rested in confidence in the Lord, even though he saw no immediate relief from his predicament. The psalm begins with sobbing and more or less ends with singing. Psalm 14, the impact of reading Psalm 14 is staggering. There is none righteous, no, not one. The whole race has become corrupt and dangerous because it chooses to live in defiance to God. If people ignore God or the idea of God, then they naturally ignore God's distinctions between good and and evil. Again, another psalm present for our context. The righteous may have to live in a godless and corrupt world that seeks to destroy them, but there is coming a glorious day of God's reckoning when he will destroy the wicked and deliver his people. 
Psalm 15 presents a problem because it's difficult for Christians to understand the world of the psalmist, a world where one must be ritually and ethically qualified to enter the Lord's sanctuary. They must be clean. In ancient Israel, this was kind of self-examination or an examination by the priest was the standard by which you were allowed to enter the sanctuary. However, now today, although we are cleansed by the blood of Jesus, we can enter the sanctuary freely. We still need to examine ourselves and see if there is sin that is hindering our fellowship from God. By the way, the fact that David listed ten moral qualities in this psalm may indicate a comparison between the Ten Commandments. I'm not going to tell you those ten. I'll let you find them out. Psalm 16 could be summed up in these words. God's protective care of his saints does not end in death, but continues in everlasting life beyond the grave. God does not abandon his saints to the grave. Verses 10 and 11 contain one of the few clear references to the resurrection in the Old Testament, a point that is underscored by the fact that Peter quoted this to prove the resurrection of Jesus in Acts chapter 2, verse 24. So while we enjoy the blessings of this life, there are blessings to come in the resurrection that will be even greater. Psalm 17 is a model prayer for the way that David presents his request to God. He does not merely ask for what he wants or needs. He argues his case, explaining why God should answer. Now, this is not wrong. For example, Charles Spurgeon uh, used to tell his congregation to pray in the same fashion, not because God needs to be persuaded to help his people, but because it helps and forces us to think carefully what we are asking and to sharpen our requests. David, as you soon will find out, was a master of supplications and petitions as you read through the Psalms. Psalm 18, David wrote this psalm after he had subdued his political enemies and had established the kingdom of Israel firmly under his control. In it, David expressed his delight in the Lord and thanked him for giving him the victories he enjoyed. This is a long and detailed psalm, a detailed thanksgiving for the Lord's great acts of deliverance. It's the kind of thanksgiving one would expect from someone who was looking back over a lifetime of experiences in which the Lord answered prayers time and time again. By the way, interesting note here, this psalm is also in 2 Samuel 22. The slight variations may be due to changes that Israel's leaders made when they adapted this poem for use in Israel's public worship. Psalm 19 is one of the most beautiful and favorite of all the psalms. This hymn by David praises God for the excellence, um, the profound effect of his creative works. This general revelation by which his power and glory may be seen is complemented by the special revelation of God's word, which enables people to understand him as the one who gives wisdom and who provides a means by which sin can be forgiven and reconciliation achieved. In the polytheistic ancient Near Eastern culture, this psalm was a strong polemic against the pagan sun gods whom their worshipers credited with executing justice. The psalmist claimed that Israel's God was the creator of the heavens, including the sun, and he was the one that established justice on earth. Psalm 20 says that if people are ignorant of God's revealed attributes and perfections, that is, if they've never realized his power in their lives, in a time of distress... The problem may be presented to the Lord in prayer, but there will be very little confidence in prayer. Why? Well, because they don't have faith in the one they're praying to. They don't understand his attributes, his omnipotence, his omniscience, his holiness, his eternality. Praying 
to a God who can move mountains, who can set up and tear down kings that is pleasing and can create the world with his breath is the God that we pray to. And that should give us all the confidence we need when we pray that he hears and he answers our prayers. Now that's all the time we have for this week. We'll continue with the Psalms in the next three or four weeks, I believe. Email any questions to BibleReadingLMBC.org and I will talk with you all next week.